2: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
3: So Gene and I have been talking, we've got loads to talk about. um, And it's really great to see so many of you here, right in the the center of the the ring of cemeteries around London. So obviously we share a fascination with, with this terrain and both being poets as well. So there's loads that we, we've got to get into, uh, but we thought maybe you'd start with a reading from the book. Mm.
4: Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for coming. I'm just gonna start by reading a very short extract just to get us into some, some conversation. Um, so this is from the very beginning of the book, um, from the preface, which I've called Old Haunts. I arrived at a gate and behind it a dilapidated churchyard. It was a raw November afternoon, and the path was slippery with black leaves. I picked my way over the broken ground to a marble tomb and read its loquacious inscription Stranger, whoe'er thou art that visiteth these silent mansions of the dead, here pause, contemplate with veneration the ashes of a man who was ever generous kind and good the favorite of nature and fortune now molders into dust happy thou if thus early taught the frailty of all earthly bliss thou seekest on the grass a discarded golden virginia packet offered its own terse coda smoking kills (laughs) i stood shivering near the railings which separate the churchyard from the park hearing the shouts of children on the adventure playground. At that moment, more acutely aware than usual of the past bubbling up through the cracks in the present, I had the idea of going back. I am past the middle of my life, I heard myself say. The mansions of the dead kept their silence. It was one of those moments where you see your life as something actual and finite. A long walk, perhaps, and you, the walker with more than half the distance covered. A parent has recently died. Your children are living as you once did, as if there were no tomorrow. And then there's you, somewhere in between, wondering how you got here and trying to reconcile all the irreconcilable bits of your own history to make a narrative out of those scattered episodes, wanting to look back and see where you've been. I would go in search of my old haunts, I thought. And when I arrived in a city and walked out of the railway station into its altered and indifferent streets, where would I begin? The graveyard, of course. The realm of meaning, the other world. Sanctuary of the slow worm, the fox and the ewe. The place where the stories are kept.
3: Thank you, Jean. So you, you talk there about the significance of cemeteries to you and the part they've played in your life—have they always been important? Have these always been uh, fi- fixtures on the landscape for you?
4: Mm, they have, and it, it is particularly great to be talking to another graveyard obsessive because mm. I find that you know the world is divided, and presumably only one half of that world is here this evening um, between those who say, "Oh, you must, you must visit." my favourite graveyard. And those who just sort of look at me and say, a mm, bit morbid though, isn't it? You know, um, yeah, they've always been important to me. And it started way back in childhood when really the, the the churchyard was another playground to us. I do, I'm afraid, remember jumping out from behind gravestones to frighten younger children. But mostly it wasn't anything to do with that. These were not in my mind spooky places at all. They were just places to play and places to be unsupervised I guess. And, and so I suppose that ever since childhood I've, I've felt in some sense comfortable in, in these places and they felt like places I, I had a right to, to be in and to explore and to, to kind of lay claim to. And, and in adulthood they're important for all sorts of reasons. I mean, they're, they're green spaces, mm-hmm. especially when you're living in a in a, in a city. They can be really important for yeah. that reason. They're actually, even though they're places of the dead, they're full of life. A lot of them are like nature reserves, really. Yeah. And they are also, as I as I kind of suggested in that reading, a kind of archive. You know, a graveyard is is often a place where it's a repository of, of information that isn't really available anywhere else. Yeah. And, and I've, I've often become slightly obsessed with something I've read yeah. on, a, on a gravestone, however kind of fragmentary it might be, sometimes just a name or, or something that hints at story. And, and I've kind of carried that with me over the years and, and wanted to go back and, and find yeah. out more. I think the other thing that I want to say right at the beginning is that I think, I think one of the reasons that I've been so interested in graveyards is that they're not, in fact, personal for me. They don't. My family were Methodists, right back to the beginning of Methodism, and Methodists were some of the first adopters of cremation, and and before then they were just all too poor to have their own graves and their own stones. So there are no, there are no family graves. There, there is nothing, for, for me, graveyards are not a kind of location um, where mourning is focused. So I, th- I think I have a slightly anthropological view of that. Mm-hmm. I, I observe that they do fulfill that for other people and I find that very interesting and, and touching. So yes, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're important. They've been important all my life, and you know I open the book by saying uh, i can I can tell my life by by the graveyards i've known, yeah. which is either wonderful or slightly sad really isn't it but anyway, maybe it's the same <laughs> well, for you
3: <laughs> it absolutely is as always the question that leads on for that for me is is why now, with this book you know there's a uh, an echo of Dante in, in what you read there. And at the midpoint of life, I, I entered a dark forest. They've been there all your life and presumably all your writing life as well. Mm. So why right now for, the, for, this, for this book to be written?
4: I think it is something to do with, with age and stage of life. I think when I, when I first began to think about this book, my mother had recently died, and there's something about that sort of long shadow of mortality. Um, that, that perhaps was making me think about these places that had always been important to me but to think about them in a in, in a deeper way yeah. and I, I think also that 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 wish to kind of try and try and make sense of my own life there 's an element <coughs> of it 's not a memoir but there 's an element of memoir in this book and I think that that wish to kind of look back and and make sense of all those bits of life, those places I'd, I'd lived and, the, and, and the, the, the kind of slightly different person I'd been at, at each of those stages of my life. There was something in that that reflected the the piecing together of the stories that I found in the graveyard as well. So those those things kind of came together, that sense mm. that making a narrative mm. was was important to me mm. at that mm. time.
3: Mm. And you... You've struck up on, you've devised this really interesting technique, uh, I think, where it's kind of like a Russian doll technique, I think, where you go back to the locations that have meant something to you, Mm. but then these stories open up, these historic stories, social history stories, stories that you maybe never expected to to find when when you set off on that journey. And you also talk about the cemeteries as the places where the stories are kept, who were the people who've allowed you to tell those stories along the way? Mm, that's
4: that's a really good question. Yeah, so so I I started to go back through my own life to these to the places I've lived in, which are, are very ordinary places, just ordinary towns in England, and and to go back to the graveyards that I used to spend time in, when I lived in those towns and villages, because there always was one. There was always one. Uh, and to go back and to, and to look. Some, sometimes, as I say, there would, there would be something that I'd carried with me over the decades. Mm-hmm. So for instance, when I was a child, I was, I was really obsessed with, with a story about a drowning, which was recorded on a, on a gravestone in, in the local churchyard. Uh, a seven-year-old boy who drowned attempting to save the life of his friend and this was hugely significant to me as a child. But I didn't, I didn't sort of know any more about it really than that. So sometimes it's been about going back to, to, find, to find out more about that. And in fact, you know, that story, as you might expect, turns out to be not quite all it seems. And, and you know, I have to do what almost amounts to detective work to kind of track down the other child, the one who, the one who survived and, 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 and found that, you know, that, that what's recorded on the stone isn't necessarily as reliable as it looks. So there's something of that, there's that sense that, that the first place you would kind of look for story in a graveyard is, is this, these chiselled words in stone. and Because stone is so hard and enduring. And that act of chiselling is such a kind of decisive one. It's tempting to think that everything you read there is true. Yeah. But of course, someone decides what to, what to put there. Someone, someone sits down and composes the message to be chiselled into the stone. And so the, the more I looked, the more I found that, that every story that I began to want to tell had this kind of unstable shifting ground in it. No, none of them are simple and straightforward. Mm. Uh, in other cases, there, there, is no, there is no stone at all. You know, because like my family, the vast majority of people were never, you know, their, their place of burial was never marked with a stone. And so then I'm, I'm kind of, I'm picking up on local mythology, local stories, rumor, um, or sometimes there's something, you know, in the written record of one kind or another. In one case, just a, a leaflet in the church yeah. that says something, that, that tells a little story about something that happened there. And again, you know, this, once you start looking into it, it's not quite, it's not as simple as it seems. And And you're right that along the way, I also, you know, living people were also (laughs) important to this project and 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 sometimes i really needed them to kind of guide me through these these uh these rather ambiguous and and debatable territories that i was getting into so there would be someone locally who was even more obsessed with this story than than i was and had been thinking about it for for years and years and was able to kind of open it up for me
3: and in this rich tapestry uh, of forms and, and techniques that you've, that you've brought together quite wonderfully in this book, I'm really interested in, in, in these sections where you're taking quite a forensic approach to often really small things. Mm. Is this your training as a poet? You know, you, you write about um, the yew tree and the, the, the blue butterfly, mm. um, Anglo-Saxon coins. And there's something really solid about that language as well, something maybe quite stone-like <laughs> about that.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it probably is to do with being first and foremost a poet. I think, mm-hmm. I think you're right about that because, you know, as, as a poet, I always start with the observed thing. I don't, I don't think I am a professional anything. But if I am, I'm probably a professional noticer. <laughs> I do go around noticing and it feels, that, it feels to me that that is my job as a writer. Yeah. And so everything starts, you know, I mean, you know, no ideas but in things as William Carlos yeah. Williams said, all abstract thought has to start surely with, with physical encounters with the world. And it does for me. And so I'm always gonna start with things that I've seen Heard, noticed, found, picked up and touched. There are three hordes of coins in this book, and I didn't go out looking for one. <laughs> there are three. I mean, partly because graveyards were places historically where, where treasure was hidden because, you know, it, it, was, it was less likely that it would be dug up and carted mm. off. Or, or, or maybe it was because there was already disturbed ground so you could kind of get away with... with um, with burying something there and you could hope to come back and get it after the war but you know often people were not able to come back and get these things anyway they, so so there are these coins these coins keep turning up in the book and yeah I suppose I suppose that everywhere I went every graveyard I went into there were things to to kind of actually look at and 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 they became the way into the stories but also a way of understanding i mean there, there are graveyards there are individual graveyards and then there's the graveyard you know the idea of the graveyard what it's what these places mean to us what it's like to be in them and often those objects or those creatures or those trees or whatever it is that i'm looking at are a way of talking about what the experience of being in these places is for us. Because there's no doubt about it, they are very particular and powerful places.
3: Mm -hmm. And you you write quite, quite lyrical, um, not quite prose poems, but kind of heading in that direction, which uh, separates out the other chapters in the book. Mm. Um, Can we maybe hear one of those? Yeah, sure. Give people a sense of it.
4: They they were not really, intended to be prose poems but they're they're kind of lifted from the copious notebooks that i've got which i just kept as i walked around these places and in a way they 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 sort of interrupt the the narrative of the book and and they they sort of bring us back i suppose to that idea of looking noticing um, straightforward observation so this is very short, just a couple of sentences. The graveyard in winter. On the tomb of Alexander Whitgift, a spider with five legs limps in a circle, stops and relearns its losses. The gold crest waits its moment in the yew. It's
3: almost too good for a prose book, that one, isn't yeah.
4: <laughs> Wasted. <laughs>
3: And it, it did. It did set me off looking at your last collection, actually, and um, seeing actually that you, you, you there's some relationship between the poems. There's a section in um, mm. in your last collection called the Lost Villages, and that seemed like a conversation with the dead. Mm. Were you aware this was happening when you were writing your poems? Was it all yes. kind into of into Yes.
4: Inter I mean, this book took a lot longer to write than I than I imagined it was going to, and so the two things were were being written at the same time, and they were kind of leaking into each other mm-hmm. in all sorts of ways that that turned out to be really productive. But yes, that 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 kind of sense of being in dialogue with the dead became became something that couldn't just be contained in this book, and it mm-hmm. started to saturate those poems as well. I was thinking there about literal lost villages you know places that are no longer that have been kind of for one reason or another have disappeared off the map or have been kind of swallowed up by other places and about about trying to kind of retrieve them in some way and and think about what what gets lost when a place gets lost mm. and and i guess that's also important here and and I think in both cases, and again, this is something to do with the, with the poetry and the training as a poet, I think, it, it's, the, it's the overlooked or the forgotten or the neglected kind of place that, that I'm interested in, always. I mean, that's true of Strands as well. I, you know, it's no accident that that bit of coast that I wrote about and, and came to know so well... You know that I was able to write about it because it hadn't really been written about much before. There wasn't this—you know—hadn't been written over and over and over mm-hmm. by other writers. For me, for me, that creative space of, of the place that that people haven't really thought much about or written much about mm-hmm. is is really important. And um, and those lost villages, you know, I, I named some of them in that sequence, but. I imagine that not many readers would have heard of them mm. and similarly the places I'm I'm writing about in this book are you know not not really famous places mm-hmm. and I, I know that you're, you've written a lot about the kind of Magnificent Seven, the big mm. really kind of enormous and famous graveyards of mm-hmm. London but I guess I've, I've kind of doing a bit of ducking and weaving around those and between them. Yeah. So although I did go and look at Abney Park, um, which is very close to where I live, you know, I I kind of came out of there then and went into the into St Mary's Stoke Newington up just up the road, which is a much more kind of shadowy and, and mm. um, little known kind of churchyard and yeah. scruffier and and a lot of the stones have completely lost their you you can't read the inscriptions anymore or they're just covered with ivy and it's not so so i think what i'm doing is quite a long way away from any idea of kind of graveyard tourism if that makes sense you know it's not like the hundred best graveyards or you know i'm not really so interested in that and i know you're not because actually when you go to those magnificent seven graveyards, you're looking very specifically for poets, aren't yep, you?
3: Yeah, lost poets.
4: Lost poets yep. and, and retrieving them.
3: Yeah, which brings us quite nicely into, you're talking about the lost places there, uh, but um, takes us into the lost people,
2: actually, mm.
3: in your book. And there's one in particular um, which really stood out for me, which was the story of Elizabeth Pickett, mm. probably because I gravitate to the grotesque um, and it elements of that about it. But maybe you could tell us, um, or maybe read a bit, actually. Yeah, I'll read,
4: I'll read a bit then. And
3: Elizabeth Pickett.
4: So this is in St. Mary's Stoke Newington, which no doubt some people will know. Someone has been picking daffodils in Clissold Park, bringing them into St. Mary's churchyard next door and placing them on the flat tombs, weighing down the stems with chunks of brick, They lie bruised and gaudy against the wet surfaces, like splashes of spring sunlight with all its brash hesitancy. Someone has been reclaiming the graves, tearing a space in the brambles, marking out a muddy plot in front of an illegible stone here and there. Burnt out tea light, pigeon's feather, budding twigs in a vodka bottle. Who has taken the trouble to tend to the long forgotten dead? Away from the fence and the park, through a crooked gate and deep in the jungly interior, the day's fabric thins and the present loses its grip. The noise of the street recedes into the distance and the voices of children on the adventure playground are softened and filtered. There are no flowers on the family tomb of William Pickett, alderman and sometime mayor of London The box of pale stone is in classical style, simply decorated with ornamental pilasters and mounted on a plinth whose iron railings have been pulled like teeth, leaving a row of small depressions scooped and half healed by the years. A breeze ripples the roof of the tomb with shadow. The lower branches of a holly tree languish exhaustedly over its surface, like the thin arms of a girl over her books. William's name was once recorded on this stone ledger, but the surface has lain open to the weather for over two centuries and long ago became inscrutable. Squinting across it at eye level, I can just make out faint bumps and hollows, which are all that's left of the text punctuated with sycamore pollen and bird shit. I move and try a different angle. I've found that a new turn of light or shade can sometimes coax an inscription into view, like the invisible writing children used to make with lemon juice, then warm into life over a candle. But no, this cipher is beyond such magic. William has gone. An inscription to his daughter has endured, however, on an oval tablet on the south side of the tomb. I part the undergrowth clear a space where I can kneel and read the words. Elizabeth Pickett died 11th of December, 1781, aged 23 years, in consequence of her clothes taking fire the preceding evening. It's only a snippet of detail, a handful of words. But here in the stillness, under the ragged canopy of Holly, It seems eloquent enough to suspend time just for an instant. The lapsed and forgetful centuries are held like a breath, and a door swings open in my imagination. A lamplit room, a winter evening, a fire hissing and popping in the grate. A young woman, not much different in age from my own daughter, standing close for warmth, talking or reading a letter or laughing or just quietly thinking her own thoughts. A police siren Doppler's past, and the door slams shut.
3: That's such a vivid image, isn't it? Kind of incendiary uh, picture of this woman, you know, alive and well one minute and up in flames the next. Did you manage to find out much else about her? I mean, is is that all we have of, of Elizabeth Pickett?
4: There is very little to go on. A young woman in the 18th century does not leave much trace. Mm. The, there's only her death, actually. There's nothing of her life. Mm. So there's that There's that inscription. And there are accounts of this death, rather sensationalised. And um, one of the things that's interesting is that those accounts, there's a kind of Chinese whispers goes on, where the account, those accounts kind of... Start to build on one another, and, and, and they become embroidered. And um, extra, often slightly titillating details are added. So um, you know the fire. She, she she's she's ironing, and she the, the the metal slug that used to go into the iron. You know she she takes it from the grate with a pair of tongs and drops it into her stays, mm-hmm. um, because of course she's in her underwear while she's doing this. Or, or, or there's, some, there's a kind of very sentimental touch, where she sees her father asleep in an armchair and goes to place a handkerchief over his face so that he's not bothered by the light. And at that moment, her dress catches fire. So it, it, it becomes embroidered, and, and I guess it goes viral, to use, a, mm-hmm. to use a contemporary term. But beyond that, you know, beyond beyond the death, which is itself mythologized. No, there's yeah. nothing. And, and, I, and I have to kind of try and get at her by, by thinking about and reading about her father, who was, you know, to, to some degree, a public figure at the time, although sank into obscurity almost immediately when he died. And part of the, part of the story there, actually, is about the tomb itself which the the reason I've gone to look at it is because I've read that there's another inscription on that tomb, which is like a kind of public safety announcement, which says, reader, if ever you should witness such an afflicting scene yourself, remember that the only method to stifle the fire is with an immediate covering. Where's that effect? And I thought, wow, that's really interesting that you would publish this piece of public safety information on a tomb (laughs) so i I went and searched for it but you know it's not there it's not there and yet all these sources describe it and so i guess you know although this is a book of stories it's also a book about stories about how we make stories how we remember things collectively Mm. how we mythologize them and And how reliable or otherwise those collective memories are. Mm -hmm.
3: And also, there's a there's a myth at the heart of that, isn't it, that death is a great leveler, whereas Mm. it isn't because uh, the history we can easily access Mm. tends to be prosperous male figures, and that seems like you, you, like you said before, you you're finding these stories that need to be told. Stories that have been lost um, because privilege wasn't there.
4: Yes, I mean, death is a great lever in the sense that we we all die, <laughs> but of course not in other respects. I mean, there there are there are stories in the book about people who could not afford uh, to, to to have a funeral. Um, about poverty so extreme that even, you know, the body itself is not respected. You know, that the bodies of, of the very poor were taken for dissection after death because it was seen as a way of, of repaying the state for the, for the uh, poor relief that it had, it had given during life. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's a story about a, a, a man of no fixed abode who ends up having the most incredible grand funeral in, in Norwich with thousands of mourners lining the streets and this very fancy monument. And you know, the extraordinary kind of differences that that accidents of, of life and death could bestow on people. But yes, of course, also, what money could buy you in terms of your, your position in. I mean, that graveyard in, in Norwich is a really good example the Rosary Cemetery, a, a wonderful place with some of the most outlandish and extraordinary monuments you can see anywhere. And, and some of them are very, very, you know, enormous amounts of money have, have been lavished mm-hmm. on, these, on these extraordinary structures. And yes, if you, if you just went to a place like that and walked around and read the names, you would get a certain sense of what life had been like in that city. But I'm, of course, much more interested in finding out about the other, the other people who are the vast mm-hmm. majority of people who are kind of on the margins of all that and are not mm-hmm. represented and are not part of that current of mm-hmm. history. Mm. like.
3: And how about us and how we relate to, to these spaces? Is there a difference between how the com- living communities relate to cemeteries outside of London than there is uh, with how we relate to our, I think there's over a hundred cemeteries in, in London, mm. we are spoilt with the dead. Um, <laughs> um, but do, do they occupy a different place in London, do you think, cemeteries?
4: I don't know. I mean, I think we some people, some of us, value them very highly because of some of the things I've already mentioned. That they are, you know, they're they're sort of welcome green spaces. Even if all you do is kind of cut through one on your way from here to there, you know, it's such a it's such a very different atmosphere immediately. You know, you go in through that gate and you know the, the kind of busyness and speed of the city is gone yeah. you know you're in this very different place so i think and 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 because of their sort of biodiversity and their wildlife value they're they're very highly valued in cities i mean uh, somewhere like abney park has yeah. quite it has an enormous um fan base doesn't it, it has mm-hmm. this uh, this kind of Friends, mm-hmm. Friends of Adney yep, Park, yep. there are hundreds of people yep, yep. who are really committed to, are either to actually going and looking after the place and, you know, and telling the stories mm. of the place and, and, and kind of, I mean, they, they've had a big lottery grant to- Yeah,
3: four million pound yeah,
4: yeah. Massive. Mm. So I think there's a, there's, a, there's a valuing of these spaces in a city, which is mm. perhaps a bit different and I think, I think also there used to be, I mean, I, I kind of touch on in, in this book that the sense that when, when there was this big mass migration of people from, from the countryside to the city, you know, at around the time of the Industrial Revolution, that one of the things that was, that was said about incomers, migrants was that they couldn't possibly belong because they had no dead in the, ch- in the churchyard.
2: Yeah.
4: A really deeply unpleasant attitude. Whether that ever meant anything to people um, in their villages, I don't know, but I, but it, it became a way of distinguishing between those who could be said to belong and those who couldn't. And I think there's a very, you know, there's, there's something uncomfortably uh, relevant to t- to us now, really, in that in that you know attempt to kind of divide the those who belong from those who don't. Quite quickly, once you've got this move to to cities, that doesn't that doesn't hold true anymore. But there's this sense, I think, that that um, in in the Victorian era, uh, memorials gravestones became more and more important and more and more elaborate, partly because of this, for those who could afford it, of course, because you, you wanted to be able to say, you know, this, this person existed. It might be that my neighbors in the city didn't, I didn't, know, didn't know them, didn't know them in life, don't know they've died. I'm, I must publish it and make it visible. Mm. So, so the city graveyard becomes something that has this very particular role in in, um, asserting the importance of this individual. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's why we've got this incredible legacy Mm -hmm. of these huge, sprawling cemeteries full of tumble-down tombs and wingless angels and all the rest of it, that, that we actually can't really look after, or at least can't look after it in the way that our Victorian ancestors wanted us to look after it. Mm -hmm. We have to look after it in a different way, I think. We have Mm -hmm. to let it become the nature reserve. Mm
3: -hmm. And we are going to open up for questions shortly. just want to ask what this journey, because if the book is a journey, a uh, journey through the history of these spaces and these people's histories, but also your journey as well. And you, you mentioned at the start your, your family background and expectations or ideas you might have had about you know where you're going to end up and how, you, how you're going to do it. Um, uh, you know, you know all the options now. Yeah, um, has, has, yeah. Has writing this book has it changed your mind about how you want to be buried and? What you want to do, or is it, is it still a work in progress?
4: It, it has changed my mind utterly, which I didn't expect at all. I, I'd always grown up with this idea that, that, you know, well, Methodists are not very sentimental about the body. You know, John Wesley used to talk about the tenement of clay. That's the body. That's how significant it is and i i grew up with this and i have to a large extent i think inherited it so i've always gone around thinking well you know quite happy to be cremated that's what has always happened in my family that's what will happen to me you know And it's even even something slightly romantic about the idea of the fire and the wind taking mm-hmm. you you know and you're just atomized gone however turns out the cremation is really not very environmentally sound (laughs) Um, and there's a quite a big movement against it now but you can't it's difficult to think of going back to having all that stuff you know stones and memorials and plots marked out and you know there are there are problems with how much land that kind of style of burial takes up. So I got I got very interested in, in writing the book in, in you know in, in what's become known as green burial. And and you know it covers a, a whole kind of a huge range of different practices actually. And some of it, when you go and look at it, doesn't look all that green. It doesn't look very different. It's just perhaps in a kind of woodland setting, but, but it's still got, you've still got the plastic windmills and you've still got the, you know, all, all that stuff. Um, I, I don't want any of that stuff. And by the time I came to the end of the writing of this book, I was pretty clear that what I, what I wanted was what what I now believe to be the most environmentally sound method which is something like the kind of medieval practice actually no coffin just a shroud you know a hole in the ground and which is covered over and the turf replaced and there's nothing to show it was ever there and to me that's that's kind of ideal and i know there's a massive paradox here because i've i've I, you know, the project of my last few years has been about going around reading these inscriptions and enjoying these places where the dead are memorialised. And I'm talking about something very different from that. But I think, you know, we leave behind enough already, that's what I really think. So yeah, quite exciting actually to have, <laughs> uh, to have had that change of heart.
3: Um ready to open it up on the on the note
1: that's interesting um so is there a way in which the book is actually a memorial then because if these places are going to fall out fashion you don't want to use them necessarily for yourself you're sort of memorializing the site of memorial
4: wow yes sorry <laughs> yes very meta yes maybe maybe i mean one or two people have asked me, "Do you think these, you know, do you think do you think these graveyards that you're writing about will be here in fifty years, a hundred years?" Well, I have not the faintest idea. Obviously, I have no idea. There's huge pressure on on land, particularly in, in a city like London, and they're not they're not they don't always survive. You know, they are sometimes covered over and built over. I don't know. Will will they just become something that? stood for a certain time and a certain way of doing things over, you know, two, three two or three hundred years. I don't I don't know. I, I I think already collectively, as a society, I think we've already moved away from the idea that every single individual must be must have an individual plot and a stone to mark the place. The majority of people I think in this country are now cremated after death. And the ashes are not usually buried anymore. They're normally scattered. In fact, they're not normally scattered. They're normally kept in a cupboard with the intention to go somewhere and scatter them one day. It's turned into something that's actually like a, a double funeral. And the, and the second can be very hard for people to face or arrange. So I think we've already shifted. And, and I find that very interesting.
1: Just on the back of that, do you think that we should save the graveyards we have? And the reason I ask you that is that I live in Cambridge, and my house backs onto a park, which then in turn backs onto a graveyard and a church, and the church goes back to the doomsday. And um, the people who owned the church wanted to build a a community centre on part of the graveyard, Mm. and the local community... Um, signed a petition saying they didn't want that to happen and we fought that for, for several years. It was really quite a tough fight mm-hmm. um, because of some of the things you've already mentioned about the idea of it being part of the community, um, and also the, the ecological side of it. There was lots of wildlife, uh, owls and bats and voles and all sorts of things like that. So do you, would you be in favour of keeping these graveyards? Mm. Do you think that that is important? These are testaments and stories of, of people's lives in the past undiscovered, to it, be discovered for generations, really.
4: Yes, it's very important to me. I, I feel it's very important. I mean, I think the, the ecological value is... is is really important because, you, I mean, it varies, but, but very often graveyards are places that are not kept too tidy and they're not sprayed with too many chemicals and the ivy isn't cut back. You know, so, so they're places where that are allowed to rewild to a certain extent and, and so they can be very different even from the neighbouring park. So, yes, I think it's very important for that reason. And, and they're just really fascinating places and places where you can, they're, they're still open and they're still available. They're free to enter. You know, the, the, there aren't all that many places in, in towns and cities like that. Spaces that we're just allowed to be in and think our own thoughts in, you know. So it, it feels very important to me. There's, there's also a, a, a kind of a move, has been a move in, in a lot of city graveyards, churchyards, to kind of clear them and make them into a garden for the church, where I guess you can, the kids can play, When you know, play playgroup, they can open the doors and let the kids out to play. And So the, the gravestones themselves are mostly taken away and you just get a few kind of pushed to the edge, it feels as though they've been pushed to the edge. I described one of these in Oxford, and, and this this row of blackened old gravestones round the edge, being like a, a row of old aunts at a disco. They seem to be <laughs> looking on very disapprovingly at all this kind of playing with tennis balls and walking the dog and so on. It's something. Something is lost. When I can understand, you know. There's, there's this kind of wish to be practical and to move with the times, but something is lost when you lose these stones, which are themselves, you know, as I say, they, they hold information that isn't held anywhere else. Yeah.
3: Not having read the book, Jean, um I'm not sure that if you touch on, and you mentioned your Methodist background, uh, and of course one of the great shifts in the culture in the last 100, 150 years is the people who were buried many of them would have expected to wake up perhaps In another world in heaven and maybe to meet you mm. know, Those that they loved in the future and, and those who inscribed the gravestones expected the same mm. uh, Do you have any reflections on the, the utter, you know collapse into a secular culture and talking about cemeteries now as um, you know places of leisure and pleasure uh, and, and and the religious function completely having disappeared from the culture. Getting...
1: Well, not completely.
3: So, what's your thoughts on? on
4: not completely, that? but I mean, clearly, it is it is um, a different a different world we're living in in that respect. And and certainly the imagery, you know, if you go to somewhere like Abney Park, the imagery there is is all about the next world, isn't it? It's all about. I mean, there are so many angels there guiding, guiding the soul of the deceased to the next world. You know, <laughs> guaranteeing them safe passage, really. And and then there are there's all this imagery of life after death, and and then I suppose if you then go to a to a modern municipal cemetery, the imagery there is very different. It's all about the life lived, so it's all about somebody's favorite pet you know or a kind of model of a car or I saw a sort of tractor and trailer in one you know it's all it, photographs from the life lived I find this very interesting that, that the that the eye is guided back in a different direction now to remember the person as they were in life rather than anticipate the life that they will have in in that other world and then of course if you go back still further to the 18th century you get the imagery on on graves is of death itself mm-hmm. you know you'll get a skull a pair of crossed bones i mean who would who would put a skull on a, a you know a picture of a skull on a grave now we'd find that really distasteful and shocking i think and I, and I, I those changes i don't know what to i'm not an expert in any of that but i think i think that's they reflect very different ideas about what death means, which doesn't really answer your question because I don't really know how to answer
1: it.
5: (laughs) Jean, thank you very much. Just following on from that last question, I've done a lot of walking around the country in the last 15 or 20 years and always stopped off at um, churches and, and looked around them. And it seemed to me that the graveyards all around the country reflect and are linked to the church, are integral to the churches, the churches, and they, they vary. And, and, and a churchyard in uh, a, a northern hilly district uh, is very different, and the graveyard is very different. It's linked to the church, and it's, it's, it's linked to the local community. And I'm struck that if you go to France, for example, the graveyards are entirely separate from the church. They're not linked to the church yeah. at all. They are separate, they're very, they don't have any uh, greenery, they're, they're entirely stone. And I wonder if you could say just a little bit more about the the, the link between the graveyard and the church mm. uh, than you've said, because it seems to me that in this country, uh, unusually, and different from the continent, they are very closely linked.
4: Mm. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things that, that used to characterize that difference was the was the kind of stone that was used, of course. You know, that if, if you moved around the country and looked at if you look at old churchyards, you know, the, it was local stone that was used. And so every region of the country would have its own character in terms of the churchyard. That's gone. That's a long time gone. And actually what you have now in municipal cemeteries and in the newer sections of churchyards as well is black marble that's what you have everywhere just yeah. black marble it's it it's ubiquitous it's as if there is no other choice anymore and i i described them in the book as looking like a row of giant smartphones yeah. just this sort of a very very uniform look a very glossy and of course, they're very cheap to produce and the stone, you know, they're mass produced and you can design them yourself on the internet now. You can design your own mm-hmm, grave, yeah. gravestone and it's really cheap. That's a different question from, from yours though, which I think is about, is about the, the churchyard and the church. And I, th- I think you're right that just that idea that you would bury the dead around the church, in the church, if you, you know, for, for the really important and well-to-do and and close to the church for everybody else is is something very particular uh, and important in this country. And means that you can understand a lot about place when you walk around a churchyard. You can, you, can, you can learn a lot about what made the place the way it was, which perhaps you can't in the in the stone and gravel enclosure of the of the French cemetery. Which is out on the edge of the village and and is not connected with the church in the same way i mean again this is not my area of expertise but i i do agree it's a completely different atmosphere and significance
0: Uh, thanks very much i was interested in your talk about bringing back sort of medieval methods of of burial Mm. and it sort of reminded me at the beginning of the 19th century when all these huge cemeteries were being planned there was a huge fear of Graveyards—they were seen as sort of sites of contagion and Mm. And disease—and it's interesting that it's you know it's come round to be a sort of green thing to do rather than a sort of scary thing that will kill us all. And I just wondered if you had any comments on that.
4: Yes, yes, that fear of miasma—that's that's that's what it was. There was a there was a a guy called um, Walker—I can't remember—George Walker—and he styled himself Graveyard Walker um which is which I do now also um but he he was he was a, a doctor I think or a surgeon and he was he, be, he, he campaigned over many years to improve the state of, of churchyards particularly in London because they were very um unhealthy and unsalubrious for all sorts of reasons however his big thing was that that there was this miasma there were these vapours in the churchyard. And that, that that's how disease spread, through these vapours. So that to walk in a, in a churchyard was to risk catching some kind of plague um, that would kill you. And in fact, it's very interesting to read his, his book on the subject, which has an incredibly long title, where he sort of, it, it tips over at times into a kind of necrophobia. You know, he, he starts talking about the dead passing on pestilence to the living as their gift to the living and, and breathing out their poisonous vapours. And it, it becomes his big thing. And he's completely wrong about it, of course. That's not how these diseases spread. But, but underlying that was a, you know, was a really important campaign because, in fact you know the the burial practices in these terribly overcrowded churchyards was very unhealthy for other reasons i think i think if you're in a graveyard on a foggy day it's difficult not to have some kind of folk memory somewhere of this fear and and also it made me think very much when i read his book about about being a child and We we used to, when you went past a graveyard, you used to hold your breath. Did anyone else do this? The the idea was that you you would, you know, from the moment you kind of arrived at the graveyard you'd, (gasps) you'd walk past as quick as you could and breathe with relief when you got to the other side. And and I always thought this was just a kind of superstition. But I wonder now whether it's actually a a kind of hangover from that fear of miasma. You know whether that there's something somewhere in the folk memory about not breathing in these vapors.
2: I, I was just thinking that in in London, um, some of the grave, the long-established graveyards are being encroached on now through high-speed rail, and and I, mm. I mean, Thomas Hardy was the first. And to be involved in that kind of thing. There's, there's a little chapel at the back of St. Pancras, I think, where a lot of graves were excavated. Um, and um, I think uh, it, it's the sort of area around the yew tree in the graveyard that is kind of now the hallowed place of many different souls. But I um, recently there was um, a, a local play in the Camden Players and they resurrected um, a kind of Hazlitt figure who's called Thomas Spence, who was a, a writer um, about Hazlitt's period of time. And a lot of the um, common graveyards now are being excavated for this um, development. And the people apparently, it used, there used to be public spaces, but now they're fenced off and entirely private. And anybody who wants admission or who's involved in working there has to sign a confidentiality uh, clause and and apparently you know um, bones are being put into boxes and labeled with the promise that they'll all be reassembled mm. and remarked later on. But it's not at all clear how that's going to be accomplished. I mean, it's not really a question; it's more a contrib- contribution. to Yes. Your
4: Thank you. Very interesting.
1: Because I've always been fascinated by Eleanor Rigby. Have you visited Eleanor Rigby's grave? No, too famous what? for me. I know, you but you just she didn't. But when you first heard it, were you not fascinated by it? Because for me, it was like the first song about mm-hmm. a person. That, that was not famous. She's mm. become, become famous because of the song. She was so ordinary. Mm. Mm. And it, it was like a poem more than a, yes. Than a song. Yes, yes. So it's not really, I just wondered if she I, features or I haven't, if have you, have you been
3: there. I know there's a statue in Liverpool of I which yeah. yeah. voice that was reminding
1: me yeah. of Eleanor, I thought, <laughs> Yeah.
4: I've not,
3: I've not visited the, no, the,
1: the
3: not but I, I agree that that song is um, just. It's um, fantastic. Yeah, it's like one of the stories from Jean's books. Yeah, actually,
1: yeah. It's exactly the story yeah, yeah. you were, you were just describing. What yeah. Sbush yeah. So. Yeah. is yeah. famous, but people don't really
4: know about her. No, no. All I need to do is set some of mine to music, <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> the money will roll in.
5: <laughs> very good idea. Um, okay. Thank you very much, Jean Sprackland, Chris
3: McCabe. Round of applause,
0: please.
2: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.